It's Friday, January 28th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. The tension with Russia continues as fears mount that they could invade Ukraine. But what are all the motivations behind it? Vladimir Putin wants guarantees that NATO will not expand further eastward. For the U.S., China seems to be a bigger threat, but we're bound to help because of our involvement with NATO. Jonathan Geyer, senior foreign policy writer at Vox, joins us for more. Next, the crypto crash has erased more than $1 trillion in global value for cryptocurrencies, and the drops have hit everyday investors pretty hard. Some are rethinking their investments, others are in it for the long term, thinking it could be the financial platform of the future. Tori Neumeyer, economic policy reporter at The Washington Post, joins us for more on all the crypto volatility. Finally, the road to filming and producing all those excellent Super Bowl commercials that many love has been very stressful this year. The average price for 30 seconds of ad time during the game is up to $6.5 million, an increase of a million from last year. However, because of COVID surges, delays and price hikes have affected commercial shoots. Suzanne Vernitza, advertising editor at The Wall Street Journal, joins us for all the disruptions. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. We will uphold the principle of NATO's uh, open door. Um, and that's, uh, uh, as I've said repeatedly in recent weeks, uh, a commitment that, uh, that we're bound to. Joining us now is Jonathan Geyer, senior foreign policy writer at Vox. Thanks for joining us, Jonathan. Thank you. I wanted to talk about the ongoing situation with the U.S., Ukraine, Russia, NATO, they're all involved. It's a very complicated thing right now. Last I heard, I think there were up to 130 Russian troops stationed around the border of Ukraine. And, you know, there was some diplomatic letters being traded back and forth between the U.S. and Russia. And I think Russia last time just countered and saying, you know what, it doesn't look like there's much optimism here. So we don't know what's going to happen. Nobody's hoping for some type of uh, invasion and military action. But we don't know. Like, you know, it, things can happen at the drop of a hat. But I wanted to talk to you about what's going on with all this. What are the underlying motivations for Russian President Vladimir Putin? He said he wants uh, agreements that NATO will not expand further east, basically expand into the Ukraine and beyond. What's going on with this? This is a great question. And it's something I've been thinking about because there's a lot of baseline assumptions we've been making. NATO, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, has 30 members, obviously it's the United States and the UK and France. And this is this Cold War entity. And what I've been wondering is, you know, why do we depend on NATO? What is the basis of this conflict with Russia? And I want to put it out there first, of course, that Vladimir Putin, this is a revanchist guy. He's obviously reportedly poisoned his enemies. He's funding separatists. He's a violent and very difficult world leader to contend with. But I did wonder to what extent U.S. politics and U.S. policy play into this conflict. So I've been going back to the early 90s in the Clinton administration where the Berlin Wall falls, the Cold War ends, Soviet Russia, which is the reason we had NATO, was to push back against uh, Soviet Russia, the USSR, no longer exists. And it's this really fascinating under-discussed history that I really think informs what's happening now because why do we need to keep adding countries to NATO? Uh, why would Ukraine, this country that obviously has historic and cultural ties to Russia, now a democracy, obviously it's under threat from Russia. 
And there are real concerns with these tens of thousands or more than 100,000 Russian troops at its border. But, you know, speaking to diplomats who've served in the Clinton and the Bush administrations, I learned that, you know, none of this was ever a done deal at the end of the Cold War. And I'm thinking a lot how this history of how the U.S. engages with the entire world in Europe and with Russia has really been cornered in or boxed in by some of these moments. And, and, and really, Biden has an opportunity, I think, as president to lead and make some choices that hopefully are not going to just antagonize and irritate that relationship with Russia. Yeah, as you mentioned in the article, the U.S. kind of chose NATO as the mechanism for you know, engaging with uh, Europe and, and other countries out there. And I guess to some point, right, to boil it down really simplistically, if you're a member of NATO, right, and you attack one country, then you kind of basically attack everybody. And and so this is kind of, I guess, a worry for Russia, right? If Ukraine becomes part of this group, uh, you know, anything that happens there, you're going to incur the wrath of all the other nations. Totally. And, and this is really the sacrosanct thing of NATO, this Article 5, that if you attack a country, you attack all 30 of them, including the U.S., the major nuclear power. And by the way, Russia is also a nuclear power, so nobody wants a conflict. But what I think is so interesting here is that Ukraine is never going to join NATO in its current form. There's all these political and economic conditions to join NATO. All 30 countries have to agree. And Ukraine, for better or worse, has a history and a contemporary scene of a lot of corruption and political dealings and economic and political issues that would need to be addressed. So it's really this weird mood point that Ukraine is never in the current moment going to join NATO. But we have the Secretary of State yesterday, Tony Blinken, saying we have to leave this open door policy, this open door to Ukraine joining NATO. But really, it puts everybody in this very untenable position. So and, and, and no so, one knows. And, and so why? OK, I, this is probably the question that we can answer. Right. So why is this is Ukraine at the center of this? If it's not going to join NATO, I guess, uh, you know, Putin doesn't want NATO to keep expanding that way. But it doesn't look like it's going to happen. Is it just kind of like an unspoken agreement that everybody's afraid of? Well, I think, you know, no one knows what Putin really thinks and what this is really about. And, you know, conservatives right now are saying Joe Biden looks weak because he withdrew United States troops from Afghanistan. I think that perspective is wrong. Other people are saying, you know, there isn't a Biden doctrine yet. We don't know. He's maybe his whole career tracks with the end of the Cold War. But a lot of those Cold War assumptions of war with Russia and maybe he's internalized those too much. But this is an administration that is a year in. It's still getting its footing. And this is a pretty major crisis that they're dealing with. And it's really yet to be seen. But what we do know is that if you listen to folks in Washington, China is the biggest concern. Everyone is worried about the competition with China, about tech, about all the potential military and otherwise concerns. And this Ukraine crisis and a potential conflict with Vladimir Putin is a major distraction for the Biden administration. And it's taking away all of their oxygen and energy to focus on what are real deep American interests in the 21st century. Jonathan Geyer, senior foreign policy writer at Vox. Thank you very much for joining us. Really appreciate it. See the Federal Reserve pivoting from an easy money position that it took for the last couple of years to battle the pandemic to 
a position now where they're talking about raising interest rates and uh, investors are getting much more interested in safe bets. They look at their crypto holdings and they think these are not safe bets. And so they're selling them off. Joining us now is Tori Newmeyer, economic policy reporter at The Washington Post. Thanks for joining us, Tori. Thanks for having me. Let's talk about what they're calling the crypto crash right now, where, you know, we've always known that cryptocurrencies were very volatile, uh, prone to very high swings and then very low dips. We've been seeing it with, uh, you know, some of the major players like Bitcoin just losing a ton of their value. I think it was down to about $35,000 a Bitcoin, you know, from a high that it was once at 64000 or something like that. So we're seeing all this, uh, the prices plummet and, you know, it's taking in everyday investors. It's taking in big investors. So, uh, Tori, what are we seeing with all this? Bitcoin is, it's still by far the biggest coin and it kind of typifies the experience across the sector over the last couple of months where we've seen this really dramatic sell-off in the price of these things. It's bounced around a little bit this week. It's trying to claw back some of the losses that, it, that it's posted. But over the last two months, it reached a high in November of around 70000 And it, now it's trading around. It's a little bit north of thirty-six as we speak today. But it's bouncing around at about half of its value. And this is across cryptos. We're seeing this, uh, this sell-off that is tracked a flight to safety that we've seen in the broader, in the stock market itself. So, you know, there was an argument that big advocates of crypto and Bitcoin especially uh, have made that it is a new form of digital gold and it is an inflation hedge. And when you see prices going up across the economy, like we've had, you know, at the fastest rate in, in decades, that would suggest that people should be piling into Bitcoin and not selling off. But investors have decided that in fact, these assets are much more like the riskiest tech stocks. And when they look and the macro conditions in the economy and they see the Federal Reserve pivoting from an easy money position that it took for the last couple of years to battle the pandemic to a position now where they're talking about raising interest rates and uh, investors are getting much more interested in safe bets, they look at their crypto holdings and they think these are not safe bets. And so they're selling them off. For people that really believe in cryptocurrency, right, as you mentioned, the, the, the kind of the next, you know, the future of money and all that, this is kind of just a bump in the road for them. They're saying they're sticking through it for the long run. They're doing uh, long-term investments when it comes to this. So, yeah, it might have dipped now, but, you know, that's kind of what happened a long time ago, too, right? Bitcoin wasn't worth that much, and it swung up so high. So, you know, the diehards are in it for the long run. Certainly the diehards. And, you know, I think it depends who you talk to. And it depends also when they bought in, because a lot of the diehards have been through this before. I mean, there was a dramatic sell-off sort of on the scale that we're seeing now in the middle of last year. There was, if for people who have been in this for even longer than that, there was a major market dip at the end of 2017 into 2018 that crypto people call the crypto winter. Uh, and it really took right. a long time for these values to recover from that point. But there were also a lot of people who really didn't start finding out about this. I'm talking retail investors, everyday people, until these prices really started to surge last year. And so a lot of these people bought in at what is, at this point, uh, the top of the market. I mean, who knows where it will go from here. So a lot of those people are looking at losses. And I think there are other people who have posted some you know, big gains. We talked to some of them for this story that we wrote in the Washington Post about this. 
and are seeing those gains drop now and are wondering whether it makes sense to kind of take their profits and get out or exactly how committed are they to this for, for the long term? You know, we've seen some athletes, right, take into saying, hey, you know, well, I, I maybe I'm doing a deal with cryptocurrency or a company or something like that. Let me take my salary in there. And we're looking at Ellie Rams wide receiver Odell Beckham Jr. When he signed his contract, uh, he said he was going to take $750,000 of that pay and convert it into Bitcoin. Well, and now the reports, we don't know exactly, right, you know, how the taxes and everything worked out. But now they're saying that deal with all the losses that have gone on, taxes that have had to be paid on the initial amount, that's only worth about $35,000 now. So, I mean, that's a huge loss if you're playing around with your salary like that. That's true. I, I mean, I don't think anyone's necessarily, he, he's not going to be eating dog food anytime soon. No, yeah, of course. <laughs> uh, and, and people are not worried about Odell Beckham Jr.'s solvency here. He's not, a, I wouldn't call him a retail investor, an everyday guy. And the other thing that's important to keep in mind with a guy like that is he was getting, there's a stunt aspect to this where he is is doing this to demonstrate that he really believes in the future of the tech of the asset but he's also getting paid a fee to promote it by the company that he's signed up to do this with and that's probably that sum was greater than his total take-home pay last year from the rams and that's that's safe but i think it points back to this phenomenon that everyday investors have to sort through where there's so much hype around this and they're kind of getting it from all sides i mean you're hearing it from your favorite athletes, you're seeing it from Matt Damon in the crypto.com commercials where right, he's saying, yeah. you know, fortune favors the bold. You're seeing names of these companies pop up and get you know, slapped on the sides of sports arenas from Miami to LA. And it's still an unregulated, in many, in, in many important ways, an unregulated space. And in the absence of better federal oversight, it's a buyer beware situation. Tori Newmeyer, economic policy reporter at the Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Obviously, everybody jumping in is used to that. But then now you add in this other layer, right? COVID protocol. So even those that didn't have like their test, their delays because people were testing positive, even though that was happening. Others, this is simply even the protocols were adding like 120,000 to a four day shoot. Joining us now is Suzanne Vernitza, advertising editor at the Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us, Suzanne. Thanks for having me. Let's talk about the Super Bowl. And one of the best parts about the Super Bowl is obviously the commercials. You know, a lot of people, sometimes some people are just fans of the commercials more so than the game, which is always fun to have at a party. But, you know, we've been getting some great games in the playoffs. There's a lot of excitement over the Super Bowl every year. And uh, we're going to talk about the commercials right now and kind of the twist that they've had to take uh, being impacted by the pandemic. Production delays, production costs are going up making sure that the commercials hit the right tone of what's going on at the time, because these things are being produced and, and filmed, you know, months in advance a lot of times. So, Suzanne, help us walk through what we're seeing with it. Sure. Well, obviously, Super Bowl is all about the advertising game that goes on in between the real game. And you're right. A lot of people, you know, tune in specifically for these ads. And what's interesting is that, you know, I don't think most people realize that these ads end up being created, or at least the ideas get generated basically weeks and months after the game is over. So they're already working on next year's ads basically a month after Super Bowl is over. So in the summertime, when most of these ads were sort of 
being put down on paper and the ideas were coming out on paper and they were actually lining up the shoots. Most of the commercial shoots, many of them, have taken place probably around the November all the way up until this week. I mean, there are people out in L.A. shooting right now. That's right. how crazy it gets. And in the summer, most brands were, you know, feeling really positive, right? As much as the pandemic was with us, a lot of the advertising executives were thinking that because the vaccines were being really widely distributed and then the numbers were, you know, in a good place, they really envisioned that they would have a really normal production schedule. And what happened was all hell basically broke loose, (laughs) you know, around the Thanksgiving time period, when all of a sudden there was reports of this new variant, Omicron, that was affecting South Africa, and particularly like avocados in Mexico, basically saw a text email from like a news organization talking about this and then had an oh my God moment because they were actually planning on filming their ad in South Africa. So they had to pivot rather quickly to find a new location. And that takes months and lots of money. And to the point, right, for avocados from Mexico, right? So they were originally going to be in Cape Town. They had to move it. They went to Mexico City, but that costed them an additional $200,000. So it's not just the disruption to your original plan and those delays. It just costs more money to move your production to get it done. The thing that's interesting and that people have to keep in mind, right, these are not normal ads, right? This is the most expensive real estate on all of television, never mind on all of you know, on any media platform, right? The ad time alone, so 30 seconds of ad time is selling for about 6.5 or as high as 6.5 million. Everybody kind of pays a different rate depending on your package and everything, but they've reached that high this year, which is up about 5.5. So that's just basic. Like you're only getting the ad time. Then you've got to figure out what you're putting on and then the production costs to do that on Super Bowl because people like you and I spend all this time talking about them. People have (laughs) these expectations. They've got to spend around a million to five on top of that for production, which means like heavy special effects or, you know, more than one, if not several A-list celebrities. And that just escalates the cause. And obviously everybody jumping in is used to that. But then now you add in this other layer, right? COVID protocol. So even those that didn't have like their test, their delays because people were testing positive, even though that was happening. Others, this is simply even the protocols were adding like 120,000 to a four day shoot. Tell me a little bit about also setting the right tone, because that's an important one, right? A lot of people are kind of very fatigued with the pandemic. So a lot of these companies are going to go with some lighter, upbeat things. But also there was one company, I guess, that uh, filmed uh, various endings to their commercial. And they're going to wait till the last minute to decide just to see where the country's at right now so they can put that appropriate commercial together for everybody. The American psyche is really a mess right now, right? Everybody's stressed out. We're back in this. The numbers are rising. So you want to make sure that you're not being offensive or making it too funny. And then the question is, do we even reflect the pandemic? And you saw last year, a couple of people did. Super Bowl is always sort of heavy on the humor because people expect that. But most marketers that I talked to that are in their game said a lot of them are like, we're going to even give a little bit extra fun this year because people are fatigued by this whole thing. Suzanne Vernitza advertising editor at the Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive was produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. 
I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive. 